Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. It's being included part of your day, and well, we've got a lot coming today. If you've taken a look at the commodity markets, you've noticed there's some red on the screen, particularly in the soybean market. Jim McCormick of agmarket.net will give us an update on that here in just a moment. And in segment two, we're going to check in with Brian Jennings. He's the CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. They were recently in Washington, D.C., advocating for some policy. We'll get the update from Brian. Before we talk with Patrick Surfass, he's the executive director of the American Biogas Council. That industry continues to expand. Patrick's going to have an update for us ahead of our conversation at the end of the show with Josh Linville, the vice president of fertilizer over at Stone X. Well, let's turn our focus to these commodity markets. Jim McCormick, we are seeing the soybeans just take it on the chin today, particularly in the old crop. What is going on? Well, I think part of it's you could say is the export sales. They did come in a little bit disappointing today. They, you know, they should be expected. The demand is shifting away from South America, but they were below the trade expectations. The crop down Brazil is still very big, Mike. And then more importantly, they're selling it a, you know, a lot cheaper than us. So the demand shifting, the market, I think, is correcting a little bit. Remind you, we do have a three-day weekend, so I think some of the bull spreads are probably booking a little profit before the holiday weekend. Jim, you mentioned that big Brazilian crop coming to the markets. We continue to hear estimates of that crop growing. Recently, I heard 158 million metric tons down in Brazil. Can it continue to grow? It's probably getting close to the maxing out. They're 75% harvested, but it's a big crop. We are going to, you know, that's why we're going to see the demand shift away from us. In a way, it's kind of good news in the fact that we are way behind our corn sales and shipments. As they shift the bean demand away to Brazil, away from us, hopefully that'll give us an opportunity to start getting our corn sales and shipments moving. The sales have picked up recently with China, but they're not there yet where they need to be to keep the government from having to cut the export number. But uh, maybe we're turning the tide on that, though. Those Chinese sales. So we have seen the Chinese aggressive getting in there ahead of this South uh, South American crop coming to market. Have the Chinese been buying in the old crop or the new crop market? For the most for the most part, it's been old crop. We have seen some new crops sprinkled, but a bulk of it's been the old crop at this point in time. Okay. All right. So there is still the risk that we could see cancellations later in this year from those Chinese buys. There's always risk with the Chinese canceling. Right now, I think it's more unlikely they're not going to cancel the corn. I think they need the corn. Uh, you know. The Safrina corn crop, we'll see how that plays out. So that's more than likely they're going to keep the corn. The beans, there is a little few red flags. You are hearing some of our commercial contacts suggest it's not a matter of if, it's more than likely when we will get some bean cancellations, plain and simple. Um, it's probably not drastic if it does happen. The reality is the bean stocks are very, very tight. That quarterly grain stock report we had last week did suggest that the carryout is sub 200. So we are at the bottom of the barrel. So if we lose a few sales to cancellations, it's not going to be dramatic, I hopefully. This has been a volatile week in the soybean trade, Jim. We saw that big move upwards after last Friday's reports. In the last couple of days, we've taken some of that market back out. From a technical perspective, what has this week done to the charts? Have we changed any major trends in the soybean futures? At this point, no. I mean, the reality is this run-up kind of took it to the long-term downtrend line. Now, like if you look at your July contracts, you fell below the 50-day and your 100-day in the last couple of days. So we kind of went to the high end of resistance and stalled out. I think at this point, 
it's not going to be it's going to be tr- tough on the old crop because the carryout is so tight. The crushers they're feeling a little bit of heat. The crush margins are not near as good as what they had been, but they're still profitable. So I think that's going to keep that old crop a little bit supportive. New crop, I think, could see a little bit more pressure because the new crop's going to focus in on this weather. And it's amazing what this weather has done. I mean, you talk about flipping the switch. Um, it feels like we've gone from essentially winter to summer in some locations. By mid, by mid to late week, they're talking upper 70s, maybe even touching 80 here in Chicago. Um, mid to upper 80s in the parts, southern parts of the I states, we are going to plant a lot of crop in the next two weeks i believe so what do you think is the risk here in new crop corn as we start to see this potentially 92 million acres go in the ground jim is there some downside risk here in this market i think there's gonna be a little bit of downward risk mike but i don't think this is gonna be drastic near term i think you're getting a little bit of pressure we're seeing pressure today maybe a little bit coming out of the weekend but because i think the real argument is going to be are we really going to plant 92 million acres that's what the survey suggested i think that's what the farmers are thinking I think the reality is we're probably not going to get 92 million acres, and that has to do with what's going on in the northern plains. Yeah, that's the thing, Jim. You said it feels like summer in some places, and then in some places, our friends in the Dakota's got 30 inches of snow here this week. That's going to slow down planting up there in the northern climes. It's going to do it. Our clients up there are saying it's not a matter of will they be prevent plant. The really debate is how many acres are going to be prevent plant. A lot of that's going to depend on how this thaw happens. Um, you know, the real risk, I, what I understand, is if it really warms up fast, and then if you happen to throw in rain on top of it, you are going to deal with a lot of severe flooding and that become, becomes a real issue. And that potentially could push more acres, you know, into prevent plant. Right now, you got some people debating, maybe I won't plant corn, I'll plant beans instead. But if it gets flooded, obviously, you'll lose those acres. So I do believe that top in 92 million acres of corn, that number is probably going to shrink back. And more than likely, that bean acreage number we got. That's probably going to creep its way back up a little bit. That 87 and a half might climb a little closer to that 88. Do you think a million gain could be realistic in beans? Probably, um, you know, three quarters million, maybe. Kind of depends on how the weather plays out. Right. I mean, you know, right here where I'm at in northern Illinois, where we're at right now, ground's still quite saturated. Fields are still got a lot of water on them. We're going to warm up. We're not going to warm up near as much as maybe central Illinois, central Indiana. But, it, you know, if the weather cooperates, you know, I think we'll get a few more bean acres, but you know, the ice states are going to try to plant the corn. The debate's going to be what happens in the Northern Plains. All right. Looking at the trade today, Jim, we've got one spot of green in the commodity markets and it's the wheat market. We've got a hard red winter wheat up quite a bit. We know that crop is continuing to struggle out there in the plains. Where can it go from here? Well, I mean, it could go quite a bit higher if you can get the funds out. I mean, the biggest problem is every time we get a big rally up, the funds just continue to sell the wheat you know, because we're not really competitively on the international market. But this wheat crop in the plains is really getting beat up this week. A lot of low humidities, a lot of wind, it's doing damage. And I think hopefully that's going to put a bottom in the market. How much we can rally, like I said, it's going to depend if the funds decide to get out of this massive short position they're currently carrying. And are the funds carrying that short position in Chicago and Kansas City both, or are they predominantly short in Chicago? They're carrying it both. But it's primarily in Chicago. So what you could see is a little bit of rebounding in the Kansas City wheat where the Chicago wheat overall continues to be under pressure. Because if you look at how the crop looks as a whole, the soft red belt, southern Illinois, southern Indiana, that crop, if anything, maybe has a little bit too much water on it right now. But it's going to look really, really good here in a week, 10 days with this warmer temp. So you could see a play where they essentially come in where they traditionally do. Well, they'll be buying the Kansas City wheat. They'll be selling selling the Chicago wheat. And they may even be buying the Minneapolis spring wheat because we're also going to be losing some spring wheat acres more than likely due to this huge 
snowpack on the ground. Yeah, that 30 inches of snow that came down covered a lot of potential spring wheat acres earlier this week. Jim, heading out next week, we've got the supply and demand estimates from USDA. Any advice to farmers in advance of that? Should we be putting some risk management in place? Well, I think you always should be able to look to put some risk management in in general, though, this is not going to be a major report. Traditionally, we do look for some downward revisions of ending stocks. That was due to the quarterly grain stocks coming in smaller than we anticipated. They'll revise the feed, feed residual down a little bit. But in general, new crop numbers, we don't go to May, so it should be kind of a placeholder report. All right, folks, keep on. Keep tuned to that. We've been talking today with Jim McCormick of agmarket.net. Jim, as always, appreciate the conversation. Thank you for having me on. And folks, stay with us. Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol, will join us here when AOA returns momentarily. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Tom Fry, Director of Performance Products at the Mosaic Company, was at Commodity Classic this year helping farmers think about advanced crop nutrition. A lot of times it's easy when we approach our fertilizer plans to kind of go, oh my gosh, I've got so much that I need to balance around seed and crop protection and new equipment and all of that to say, oh, I'm just going to do the same thing I did last year. Up to 60% of the yield potential on any given field is directly related to balanced crop nutrition. So let's make sure that if we're going to get the most out of that seed, the most out of the precision agriculture that you're focused on, that you're taking some time, pull soil tests, coordinate with your retailer, and really think about what your precision fertilizer plan is for 2023. Tom, the conversation around biologicals has accelerated rapidly. What's changed to bring them to the fore? Part of it is just the, the new tools and research that we have to be able to more precisely identify the right mix of microbes uh, and put them in a package that allow them to perform. There's been a huge investment made by a, a wide number of companies. I, I think the reason I'm excited about uh, the Mosaics approach is it's the same science-based approach that we use to develop new products in our fertilizer. Tom, why is Mosaic, a fertilizer company, getting into the biologicals business? Yeah, so it's a natural evolution in terms of if we're going to focus focus on increasing efficiency, which is a big part of what I think we're all trying to do in the ag space. Let's also think about, are there ways that we can improve the performance of plants within that, that sphere where we get this interaction between the soil, the plant, and the, the chemistry. What advice do you have for farmers who haven't yet looked at a biological in their operation? Well, that's part of our message here at Commodity Classic is it's time to do some research. It's time to get engaged. People can go to cropnutrition.com and get more information about Mosaic's approach uh, in this space and learn more about Biopath and PowerCoat. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We, we win. win. 
We, 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 we are, are the, the Foundation, Foundation Fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are Fighting Blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. Today, something we are a big proponent about here on the AOA radio show is getting in touch, getting in front of your legislators and your regulators to tell them about the work we're doing out here in the countryside for agriculture. And here this past week, we had several ethanol producers and farmers make that trip to Washington, D.C. to advocate on behalf of their industry for the American Coalition of Ethanol fly in to D.C. Joining us now, for an update is CEO of ACE, Brian Jennings. Brian, was it good to be back in D.C. checking in with all those folks uh, in the ethanol industry? Hey, Mike, good morning to you and your listeners. And yeah, believe it or not, it was really good to be back in the Beltway, to be in the nation's capital, because we had taken a bit of a hiatus due to COVID and some other issues. So this was our first time back with our members uh, to do a fly-in since 2019. So it was timely not only for the cherry blossoms, but it was timely for a lot of important priority issues that we have on our plate. Absolutely, Brian. I think one of those most important priority issues is summer is coming close. We are running out of time to have access to E15 at pumps across this country. What was that conversation like about getting E15 authorized for year-round approval? E15 year-round and more acutely, as you mentioned, Mike, getting a solution in place for the upcoming June 1st summer driving season was our very top priority. As you might imagine, we were able to talk not only to members of Congress about the legislation that has been introduced on both sides, on the House and the Senate side, which would solve for this problem on a permanent basis, which is the long-term solution we need. But we were also able to engage with EPA about the urgent need to do something about the summer of 2023. And what we're advocating for, Mike, is the same emergency steps that the president announced in Iowa almost a year ago now, um, when he announced the fuel supply situation was under a lot of stress due to the war in, in Ukraine, due to uh, volatility. Um, and so he took those emergency steps to allow E15 last summer we need that very same step to be taken for the summer of 2023. And our members, 60 strong, were able to impress upon EPA the, the urgency of, of needing to do that. Brian, what is the timeline for your members? What is the timeline for the retail industry to be able to handle an emergency waiver and keep those pumps stocked with E15 as we get here past June 1st? So technically, Mike, the, the summer driving season, um, as EPA defines it, begins June 1st for retailers. However, think about everyone in the supply chain that needs to be equipped to supply those retailers with the correct fuel um, in, in advance of June 1st. And so really what we're looking at is May 1st. So we have less than a month. Um, May 1st is that time frame for 
a lot of the terminals to make sure that they've got the right fuel in the tanks and they're ready at the racks for those truck transports that pull in to that ultimately deliver that fuel to the retailers. And so that's why, you know, the next two or three weeks are really critical. We know the president made this decision or excuse me, made the announcement April 12th of last year in talking with EPA in talking with members of Congress. We know the White House is having conversations about how and when uh, to do this. We know EPA believes that their their emergency steps are legally defensible, so they wouldn't there wouldn't be any obstacles there. So it's just a matter of continuing to press upon both EPA and the White House that this needs to be done and it needs to be done very soon. So I would expect, Mike, before the the month of April closes, we should have an announcement, whether it's from the White House again, I don't know, but at least from EPA about emergency steps to allow E15 this summer. All right, folks, be watching those headlines. We're getting down to a crunch time. We'll see if the EPA can move forward with a solution. Brian, I want to take a step back from this summer. Look out longer term. We're seeing this focus on clean fuels continue to grow. And I know ACE is is a pioneer of the technology neutral clean fuels program. Can you talk a little bit about what you see coming in the in the future? Yeah, so what we really discovered, and we, we knew this going in, but we discovered it, reinforced it last week in the meetings we did. We did 100 meetings between the House and the Senate side, our members did, I should say. And both Republicans and Democrats in Congress are beginning to have um, more robust conversations about clean fuel policy and about steps that can be taken to further decarbonize the transportation fuel that we're using. And I know for a lot of folks in rural America, we get concerned that that must mean, oh, they're going to try to electrify all of the vehicles. And that absolutely is a concern of ours. But what I can tell you is that there, there are more serious conversations going on than that, that lawmakers understand it's just impractical to electrify everything. And that means how do we then decarbonize or reduce the carbon intensity of the liquid fuel that will be used for generations to come? And ethanol plays such a critically important role there. And so our members, whether they were farmers or ethanol producers, were able to talk to these members of Congress about how their practices on the farm help reduce car, uh, ethanol's carbon intensity or an investment made within the ethanol facility itself perhaps reduces energy use and then uh, reduces the carbon intensity of our fuel. So we're re we really tried to put uh, a foot forward to, to talk about how ethanol and farmers are part of the solution as long as these policies are technology neutral and treat everyone uh, from a low carbon technology standpoint on the same plane field. As long as that field is level, we see biofuels being very, very competitive. Of course, Brian, ACE is a the chief proponent of this. You're very active politically. If we've got listeners who want to chime in, learn more, where can they go to keep up with the work that ACE is doing? Sure, Mike. They can go to ethanol.org. They can learn more about the advocacy we're doing. And in fact, right now we're doing a very urgent call to action where they can contact the White House or EPA to make sure that, that the administration knows we need this E15 emergency waiver. So if you go to ethanol.org, we can help hook you up with contacting either the White House or the EPA today. 
Fantastic, folks. Take them up on that. Use these tools to, to spread the good word of agriculture. We've been talking today with Brian Jennings, the CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. And Brian, I know you've got a lot on your plate today. We'll let you go. Thanks for joining us here on AOA. Thanks so much, Mike. And folks, stay with us. We are going to have more coming up. We're going to be talking with Patrick Surfass of the American Biogas Council here in just a moment. But before we go, we do have an update on a subject that we have been talking about a lot on AOA over the past several years, and that is the dearth of free trade agreements from this administration. It was a conversation. Perhaps we'll see an FTA signed with the country of Kenya in 2024. There's the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework happening over in the Pacific region. But of course, that's not a trade deal. And U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai yesterday had the chance to speak at American University in Washington, D.C., and she addressed these complaints head on. She said that the traditional approach of cutting tariffs through free trade agreements no longer works in the highly competitive global economy of the 21st century. She went on to say, quote, we are writing a new story on trade, one that makes us more resilient, our economy more sustainable, and our results more inclusive. She said that the trade policy of this administration will need to work hand in hand with with industrial policy. And she goes on to mention that the U.S. is employing or is investing a lot in infrastructure, semiconductors and clean energy technology to complete this linkage. Big change in the way that American politicians have pursued free trade agreements coming from the U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai. No doubt we'll be learning about how this could impact agriculture as we continue to watch out longer term. She went on to defend the work being done with the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, uh, noting that while these are not focusing on tariffs, remember, there's no additional market access coming from that Indo-Pacific economic framework. What they're focused on is the regulatory, environmental, food safety, labor, and digital economy issues that can be trade barriers in advance of tariffs. Those are things that you can use beyond tariffs to shut down or encourage trade. And so that's where Ty believes this administration needs to be spending their time. We've also got some news here on the export results of U.S. pork and beef coming from our friends, the U.S. Meat Export Federation. They note that in 2022, U.S. pork and beef exports boosted the value of corn by 15% per bushel, and the value of soybeans climbed 13% per bushel thanks to the amount of grain and oil seeds we were able to walk off the farms in the belly of these critters. For every bushel of corn we marketed in 2022, USMEF says a little over a dollar of that was attributed to red meat exports. Trade matters to agriculture. We'll see how this decision from the USTR impacts it going forward. But stay with us. We'll be talking biogas when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Pride, it runs deep for those in agriculture. 
but that pride can also prevent farmers from asking for help when it's needed most. An injury, illness, or natural disaster is a heavy burden for any operation to bear. Farm Rescue is here to help shoulder that burden. We are a nonprofit organization helping farm families in crisis with free planting, haying, and harvesting assistance. There is no pride lost when it comes to Farm Rescue. Learn more at farmrescue.org. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, as we take a look at this market trade as we are getting set for the three-day holiday weekend with Easter on Sunday, seeing pressure in the soybean complex, mainly in beans themselves, down uh, double digits here in the old crop contracts, new crop down moderately as well. Also seeing some pressure in corn down uh, really two to six lower with Chicago wheat also two to three lower. Seeing a little strength though in Kansas City wheat and in spring wheat here as we work through our session. Meantime, really good, robust strength in the cattle market. Hogs did have a sharp move higher at the open, but have since backed off of that move. We did get big pork sales on the weekly export sales report as China bought just over 20,000 metric tons. And we had a total sale of 53,200 metric tons for the week for pork, a marketing year high. Corn net sales for old and new crop were solid, with China taking 23.1 million bushels on the week. Beet and wheat sales, though, were not that robust for the week ending March 30th. So those numbers playing in. Traders, though, just cautious here, it appears, ahead of the holiday weekend. Jobs continue to be a focus on Wall Street as we head into the holiday with the data this morning focused on layoff and weekly jobless claims. First-time jobless claims rose notably to 228,000 in the week ended April 1st, which is well above analyst expectations of 201,000. Furthermore, the previous week's total was raised to 246,000 claims, up from the 198 originally reported. This pushed the four-week moving average to 237.75 thousand jobless claims. So watching how Wall Street reacts so far, fairly quiet on Wall Street as we work through our Thursday. And again, it just feels like traders are going to be having a cautious tone and will reset after the three-day weekend. That is the Check of the Market Trade this hour. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for taking 
with us here today on AOA. You know, we just heard from Brian Jennings at the American Coalition for Ethanol. And if you're a regular listener to AOA, you know, we've talked about the liquid biofuels industry quite a bit. But biofuels aren't just liquid. Sometimes they can be a gas. And joining us now for an update on that segment of the industry is Patrick Surfass. He serves as the executive director for the American Biogas Council based in Washington, D.C. And Patrick, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Mike. I want to start by getting into sort of the the facts of the industry. Patrick, biogas, of course, would be impacted by this most recent Environmental Protection Agency Renewable Fuel Standards Set Rule, the big piece of love rulemaking, and it's going to help shape our biofuels industry. How did the biogas industry come out under this set rule from EPA? Well, really, really well. There's a bunch of things in the rule that we've been working with EPA on for, for a long time, and it helps to get some things working that should have been working for probably the last several years, maybe as many as seven years, and now we're, we're finally moving ahead. So there's uh, moving the Renewable Fuel Standard Program ahead, which is really helpful to for encouraging the production of renewable fuels. Uh, moving it ahead is was a big part of it, but there are two other major things in it. One is finally activating the ability to uh, make renewable electricity for electric fuel, for electric vehicles from biogas, which really helps small and medium-sized farms in particular, and then also allowing for food waste to be added to biogas systems, which not only helps to recycle food waste, but can really help boost biogas yield. So if you've got a farm-based biogas system that's taking in manure as your primary feedstock, if you just take in about 10% food waste, you can sometimes double your biogas yield just with that little amount of food waste because it's got so much energy in it. So the two things together uh, we are expecting will really help to boost the growth of the industry, but in particular also help to build out their smaller and medium-sized systems, which in the ag industry is really going to help uh, your smaller and medium-sized farms, probably mostly dairy and swine, to some extent poultry as well. Patrick, and that's a great point. Let's let's back up a little bit and talk about the shape of the industry. You, you mentioned the, the different size of facilities that can be installed. For the American Biogas Council's perspective, what segments of the industry do you guys cover? Is it all the way from the farmer up to the utility scale, or do you have a sp specialty that you focus on? Yeah, it's everything because the biogas system really touches, touches all parts of that industry because you got to touch the feedstock, which can impact farming operations, then what do you do with the product? What do you do with your gas? How do you sell it to make money uh, for the farm? And what do you do with the digested material, your solids and liquids that formerly were manure or food waste and now is this awesome super fertilizer? Um, do you use that on your land and help to boost your crop yields by, you know, in some cases up to 10 to 30%, which is an amazing yield for, for crop growth? Or do you put it into a different form, maybe dry it so that you can sell it to your neighbors or somewhere else off farm. And that is fantastic. And Patrick, when we think about the the biogas production industry, the digesters, the the power plants, you're taking all of this organic waste and converting it into uh, renewable gas. They've been around some time, but the growth has been accelerating rapidly. Can you give us an update on the industry? What kind of growth levels have you seen on construction projects? Yeah, I mean, biogas systems have been around for decades. And if we, if we look at just the ag sector, although we also do biogas systems at wastewater facilities and standalone food waste uh, biogas systems as well, landfills are even biogas systems, kind of a, a less engineered version of the tank style 
biogas system that you that you have on farms, those have been around for decades. And in the ag industry in particular, they've generally been used to help uh, knock down odor from raw manure and uh, help to convert the material into the, the manure into a material that's uh, more readily absorbed by, by our crops and your fields, uh, and also to generate additional revenue. Those additional revenue streams are especially important, of course, when you have a very variable commodity markets. So that's always been there. And we've probably got about 200, well, about 300 farm-based biogas systems that are operating in the U.S. out of 2,300 nationally. And what's really happening is that as these biogas systems are seen um, running more and more successfully by, by different farmers and farmers talk to other farmers, and now we see some of these policies in place that are really helping to increase the profitability of some systems, it's encouraging more and more farms to start building these biogas systems to recycle their manure and turn it into a renewable energy uh, product and a soil product. And the number of new systems we're seeing growing in some sectors up to 40% a year, which is amazing growth and something that we need because we've got all this organic material. Uh, if someone doesn't recycle it, we're going to have to find some other way to deal with this. And this is just the best way of returning the resources back to the land. Absolutely. And dividing that organic material into two value-added products is a is a pretty neat plus. Now, I did want to circle back to a com comment you made there, uh, Patrick, because as we're thinking about adding an extra revenue stream, particularly for those far farmers looking at installing digesters, the question comes back to how do you sell the gas that you're producing? Do you truck it? Do you pipe it? Do you sell it as power? What do we need to know before we start digging into these digesters? Well, it kind of depends on on where you are. What what is easiest to sell from where the material is? Because you don't want to move the manure. You don't want to move the food waste. That's all wet. Wet is heavy. Heavy is expensive to move. But moving gas or moving electricity is easy to move. So yeah, you build the biogas system where the organic material is. And then from that biogas, you generally either run the biogas through an engine, microturbine, or fuel cell or a linear generator and produce electricity and then put the electricity, maybe you use it on site at the farm or some of it, and then you export the rest of it um, through our electric lines, or uh, you can clean up the biogas and biogas is 60% methane, 40% CO2. If you take the CO2 out, you're left with nearly pure methane. That's the same as conventional natural gas that we already have in the pipeline. So if you're near a gas pipeline um, or you can connect to one, then you might upgrade your biogas to renewable natural gas and put it directly into the pipeline and transport it to your customers uh, that way. So it really depends on where you are and, uh, and what the size of your system is. That's incredible, that kind of flexibility on such a product. Well, while we're thinking about the feasibility of digesters on farms in particular, for our audience here, Patrick, is there a geographic region of the country that seems to make the most sense, either because of the value of the gas or electricity being sold or the convenience of uh, feedstocks? Well, in some places, the policies can uh, make the opportunity slightly better or, or slightly worse. But, but really the opportunity is so strong right now because of some of these national policies uh, that we have in place now with the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed this summer and the changes that we're expecting to, to be finalized in June from the renewable fuel standard. Um, those are so powerful that it's really uh, creating growth everywhere. And you're gonna find that biogas systems are needed wherever the waste is. We talked about earlier, you don't wanna move the waste because it's wet and heavy. 
Um, and so you basically have organic waste wherever there's people producing the solids that need to be handled for our wastewater or producing food waste or where there's animals and that's producing manure or any of the other organic waste that comes from processing the animals and then cleaning the facilities that process those animals. So you're basically going to have organic waste wherever there's people or animals. And I challenge anyone to find a point on the map in the U.S. that doesn't have people or animals. And wherever you have either or both of those, you're going to have waste and you should be building biogas systems to be able to recycle it. Building those biogas systems, of course, anytime we're pulling new technology into new places, there's a price tag for it. You mentioned some of the incentives out there. Is there Are there still any incentives floating around from either the Inflation Reduction Act or the infrastructure bill here over the recent years? Yeah, there certainly are. They, they've uh, really created um, a lot of opportunity to be able to get value from the environmental benefits that you're already being that you're already creating by building a biogas system. So the benefits were, were already there. Now they're able to be monetized a little bit better so you can get carbon credits or renewable energy um, credits. And there's an interesting thing just to that's happening, especially with the Inflation Reduction Act that might even tie back into your previous speaker here where we're not just, the biogas industry is not just producing renewable electricity or renewable natural gas. We're sometimes also producing the feedstock to make other renewable fuels. So the ethanol industry, for example, is starting to use biogas instead of conventional gas to lower the carbon footprint of ethanol. It's even happening with gasoline and diesel. Gasoline and diesel uses a lot of hydrogen to make gasoline and diesel from oil. Well, that hydrogen is generally made with conventional natural gas, with fossil-based natural gas. If instead you substitute renewable natural gas or biogas in that process to make the hydrogen, to make the gasoline and diesel, you've now lowered the carbon footprint of even gasoline and diesel by using biogas. And there are other renewable fuels as well, sustainable aviation fuels, um, and others. And so it's really interesting to see this growth of not just producing electricity or renewable natural gas, but also producing these feedstocks to decarbonize fuels all across the country. And that really creates an opportunity for the ag industry to be able to recycle manure, produce these products that many people are going to want to buy, and hopefully some environmental benefits along the way. Yeah, and a little bit of a market premium never hurts either when new industries are being developed. Patrick, of course, you keep track on the whole biogas industry there at ABC. Where can our listeners go to keep up on both the policy and the production side of uh, biogas? Go to AmericanBiogasCouncil.org and sign up for our mailing list. We'll be happy to share all kinds of good stuff with you. And it is an industry that is continuing to change and continuing to grow. Might be a good fit on some of your operations. Patrick Surfast, Executive Director of the American Biogas Council, thank you so much for joining us here on AOA today. Always a pleasure. And folks, stick around. We're going to talk about some of that manure value as fertilizer with our friend Josh Linville of Stonek here when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. 
And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Hey, Dad. Your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad. Your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey. Why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Tom Fry, director of performance products at the Mosaic Company, was at Commodity Classic this year helping farmers think about advanced crop nutrition. A lot of times it's easy when we approach our fertilizer plans to kind of go, oh my gosh, I've got so much that I need to balance around seed and crop protection and new equipment, all of that, to say, oh, I'm just going to do the same thing I did last year. Up to 60% of the yield potential on any given field is directly related to balanced crop nutrition. So let's make sure that if we're going to get the most out of that seed, the most out of the precision agriculture that you're focused on, that you're taking some time, pull soil tests, coordinate with your retailer, and really think about what your precision fertilizer plan is for 2023. Tom, the conversation around biologicals has accelerated rapidly. What's changed to bring them to the fore? Part of it is just the, the new tools and research that we have to be able to more precisely identify the right mix of microbes uh, and put them in a package that allow them to perform. There's been a huge investment made by a, a wide number of companies. I, I think the reason I'm excited about uh, the Mosaics approach is it's the same science-based approach that we use to develop new products in our fertilizer. Tom, why is Mosaic, a fertilizer company, getting into the biologicals business? Yeah, so it's a natural evolution in terms of if we're going to focus focus on increasing efficiency, which is a big part of what I think we're all trying to do in the ag space. Let's also think about, are there ways that we can improve the performance of plants within that, that sphere where we get this interaction between the soil, the plant, and the, the chemistry. What advice do you have for farmers who haven't yet looked at a biological in their operation? Well, that's part of our message here at Commodity Classic is it's time to do some research. It's time to get engaged. People can go to cropnutrition.com and get more information about Mosaic's approach uh, in this space and learn more about Biopath and PowerCoat. Hardworking families are feeling pain at the gas pump. Fortunately, American-made ethanol provides some relief. Today, gas with 15% ethanol, called E15, is the lowest-priced fuel available. 
But E15 will disappear on June 1st unless Washington acts now. Call your lawmakers today and call the White House at 202-456-1111. Tell them we need E15 this summer. We can't afford another price hike at the pump. Brought to you by the Renewable Fuels Association. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. We are moving on to the fourth segment of the show, but we're going to throw it back to the first segment. Jim McCormick of agmarket.net was our guest, and he talked about the weather change that is coming in this next week for a lot of places in the Corn Belt. The warm-up is upon us. We're going to have folks thinking about getting in the field, which means how are we shaped up from a fertilizer perspective. Joining us now for that update is Josh Linville. He's the vice president yeah. of the over at Stonex. And Josh, thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Let's talk about this warm-up coming, Josh. How are we sitting for applications so far this year? Yeah, I know uh, this warm-up is definitely a much needed change. It seems like this winter just went on forever. And I don't know if it's just a factor of me getting old or if this is actually just a longer winter than normal. But, yeah, we're finally getting some temperatures looking like they're going to rise. Things are starting to look like they're improved. Uh, the unfortunate part is we lost March uh, for a lot of the U.S. You look at what the conditions were. Very cold, very wet, not conducive to getting fertilizer application done and that's kind of the storyline today is while it's too early to call it a failure and i don't think it's going to be called a failure i think it's going to be less than expectations but phosphate potash uh application i think is going to be down versus what we expected it to be and the interesting thing for nitrogen is that anhydrous pre-plant demand, I think, is going to be down. I don't think it's going to be uh, expectations, and that could be the bump on the urea and UAN markets. Josh, I want to talk to you about anhydrous a little bit. And if you could, snug in a little closer to your microphone. We're getting some background noise there. And I'm curious, what did you expect to see last fall? Were we able to get some decent gas down? So last fall was actually a pretty good season. Uh, last fall, we got almost exactly what we thought it was going to be. Um, it wasn't, I'm not going to sit there and say that it was phenomenal. It didn't beat everything. Um, Let's try it. Can you still hear me? Hey, loud and clear, loud and clear, Josh. Thank you, sir. Hello? Yep. Hey, can, can you hear me there, Josh? Oh, shoot. Can folks. you hear me? Looks like we might be having a bit of a connection issue. Josh, I think, has found a different microphone, but he's lost the speakers. Josh, shoot. Well, we will see if we can get Josh back Hello. on the line here shortly. Josh, I'm going to mute you real quick. Um, shoot me a message when you can hear me again. All right, folks, and we are going to continue talking. I apologize about that. We're getting Josh back in now. He'll be coming back shortly. But in the meantime, we do have some news, an article coming out of our friends at Meeting Place highlight a challenge in Minnesota. Farmers are growing concerned about African swine fever because there is a pack of wild hogs 
roaming in from Manitoba, way up in the northern parts of Minnesota. These wild hogs, a, a herd of them, is within about 40 miles of the state's border. And the concern is that not only are these wild hogs going to bring uh, destruction, as of course they do in farmers' fields and across farm lots all across this country, they could also bring disease. And we have been tracking the spread of African swine fever, of course, around the globe in recent years. And we don't have any in North America as of yet. There are no reported ASF cases in Canada at the moment. There are none in the United States and none in Mexico. We do have an African swine fever case currently very active in the Dominican Republic in the Caribbean, but nothing currently on our shores that we're aware of. Of course, the challenge is we're not testing wild hogs. We tend as a as governments, both in the U.S. and others, to test wild hogs when they are found dead. And that is when they send in the tissue samples. And that is often when these, these reports of African swine fever are found. So the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources uh, doesn't have any fund for wild hog monitoring programs, though there is some push in the Minnesota House of Representatives uh, that would penalize ownership of wild boars. The idea being, well, at least we're not going to continue to... Uh, to bring in more wild boars or keep them running around there in Minnesota. Some other news here from India. We're waiting on uh, checking in on Josh here. He's not back yet, but we do have some stories here from around the world. And this one is an Indian story, and it is a it's an inflation story, truly. Milk price is exploding in the country of India. We've talked about the economic growth that has been taking place in that country. It's been much slower to grow than China, but a lot of ag experts are excited about the potential that India brings to the global demand scale as their economy continues to grow. Well, we're seeing, or we could be seeing, the impact of those Indian consumers in global dairy markets as we get through 2023. Right now, farmers in India are dealing with two issues at the same time time. Condition number one is a disease called lumpy skin, which is, I imagine, a disease that is what it sounds like, a disease of lumpy skin, and it draws down the, uh, the uh, that's issue one. Then they're also seeing a drop in market-ready uh, cattle, just like we're seeing in this country. In India, the supply crunch is being uh, brought about because of the pandemic shutdowns. They did not, they were not able to get most of their cattle bred. So we saw breeding rates and insemination rates drop in India, particularly in their dairy sector. And that is what is moving the market right now. Milk prices have climbed 15% over the past year. That doesn't sound like a whole lot to us who are used to seeing market prices in the grocery store shelves. In India, it's a little different. Their prices tend to be fairly stable. They don't move all that much. So a 15% move in a year is a very big move. In fact, it is the fastest rise in price for dairy products in India in a decade. And what this is doing is it's skewing those inflation figures that the Indian government is looking at. They'd like to see that 15% price rise in dairy eliminated. And the only way they can do that is by bringing in more milk supply. Now, that is a challenge in India. They do keep their industry very well protected, but the dairy imports are happening. Last year, in 2022, we saw a 39% jump in imports of dairy products into India, and it's expected that we are going to see that climb another 7% this year. Now, milk production in India is likely to rebound as they get through these concerns with lumpy skin disease as that breeding rate it gets back to normal for that Indian water buffalo herd. I, I would imagine that would help bring the price of milk back down. But for the time being, those Indian consumers are going to be looking everywhere for milk. And I've got a feeling 
Part of that will mean coming back to the United States to secure our high-quality dairy protein. Folks, thanks for listening to AOA today. Tomorrow's show will be on Good Friday. It will be a recorded show, but we wish all of you a happy Easter and a wonderful weekend. Thanks for listening to AOA, folks. We'll talk to you on Monday. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. What a great organization, helping families in need like ours. It's a godsend. When an unexpected crisis strikes, Farm Rescue is here to help. Assistance is available free of charge to farm families experiencing a major injury, illness, or natural disaster. Our volunteers and equipment are ready to spring into action with planting, haying, and harvest support. If you or someone you know could use a helping hand, visit farmrescue.org today. As planting season begins across the country, the American Seed Trade Association reminds farmers to follow the basic steps for seed treatment stewardship. Follow directions on seed container labeling. Eliminate weeds in the field prior to planting. Minimize dust by using advanced seed flow lubricants. Be aware of honeybees and hives located near the field. Ensure that any spilled seeds are removed or covered by soil to protect wildlife and the environment. And remove all treated seed left in equipment. For more information, visit seed-treatment-guide.com or contact your seed dealer. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach, and in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council.